Hello and welcome to our University of Strathclyde podcast series, run out of the world-famous School of Education, right in the heart of the beautiful city of Glasgow in Scotland. We bring you a mix of meet and academic interviews, thought pieces, conversations and provocations on all things education, to give you a glimpse into our world-leading education research here at Strathclyde and of course to stimulate your questions and thinking around the meaning, purpose and practice of education in schools, in communities, and of course, in all our lives. Hello, and welcome to this edition of the School of Education podcast. Now, today, we're going to try something a wee bit different um, from the other, the other things that we've got on the website. So on our podcast, we have Meet an Academic. We've got conversations with children and young people. We've got Meet a Team, where people talk about their particular courses. And today, just because we want to be a wee bit different and exciting, we are plagiarising from Desert Island Discs that some of you will know from Radio 4. So in Radio 4, they have the programme Desert Island Discs, where some celeb comes on and has an opportunity to talk about their favourite records that they might take with them to a desert island um, and then they get to choose one that they would keep where they so stranded. Now that's obviously not what we want from university colleagues so today I'm lucky enough to be joined with Nova Scott who's a teaching fellow in educational leadership with us here in the School of Education and Nova used to be a head teacher and before that she was a primary school teacher. So what Nova has agreed to do is pick her desert island books. And it's no Danielle Steele, Jackie Collins nonsense for our Nova. It's going to be academic texts. So she was asked to pick maybe three or four academic te texts that were she stranded on a desert island. These would be her go-to texts. And we asked her to think about one from the earliest stages of her career when she was a student teacher, one for when she was a practicing teacher, and one now as an academic within the university. And then she might have another one thrown in for good luck if we've got time within the 20 minutes we've got. So enough from me. Welcome, Nova. Thank you, Claire. Go on, tell us, tell us what's your first book from when you were a student. And I have to confess, I actually don't remember reading any books or articles when I was a student, but I must have done. Well, clearly I was a much better student than you, Claire. <laughs> so my initial teacher education at Jordan Hill College of Education, as it was then, was from 1991 <clears throat> to 1995. Which, oh, uh, listen, it's as well our listeners can't see you because they would not believe it. <laughs> <laughs> that's why I like Claire, that's why I like you. So I'm going to choose a classic from that time, which everybody just called Cole and Cole. Um, now that wasn't actually the name of it. And when I was when I was thinking about this podcast, I couldn't actually remember the name of it. So I put a, a plea out onto Twitter <laughs> and I was reminded that it was quite the the title of the book was The Development of Children. Um, and the, the authors were Cole and Cole, Michael and Sheila, I think, if I remember rightly. Um but everybody just called it Cole and Cole. And it was an absolute tome of a book. It was hardbacked. It was a kind of raspberry coloured um, cover with, um, then it had 
a white part of the cover with sort of silhouettes of, of, sort of children at different stages. Um, and it was the core text for professional studies, the module that was professional studies at the time, which in, interestingly, my tutors for professional studies, Claire, is what we are none other than Professor Emeritus Donald Christie, who I believe you know wellish. I do. <laughs> and uh, the late, great Professor Emerita um, and much loved and missed Effie McClellan. Um, they were they were two of my my tutors um, and we were absolutely terrified of Effie, I have to say. <laughs> less so of Donald, less so of Donald, um, but both fabulous people. Anyway, this, this text was... Um, it was an interesting one because it was one that made me feel both really clever and really stupid at the same time. So slight backstory, I had left um, school at the end of fifth year, principally to annoy my parents. I was going through a very unusual rebellious stage and I got a, a, a YTS, do you remember those? I and, did remember <laughs> YTS. Yes, in a travel agent um, for the princely sum of £23.50 a week. That's what I earned. Um, so for a few years after I left school, I had learned, I had read nothing more challenging than the Thompson's Summer Sun brochure. Be perfectly so, honest, we're talking desert islands here. It might stand you in good stead. Well, it might, it might, it might. Yes, it might. You're you're right. Um, so when I bought this from the bookshop at Jordan Hill, because <laughs> there was a bookshop on campus, which was very helpful. Um, and I remember at the time thinking it was really expensive, and I'm sure it was something like £28 at that time, which I suppose was, was expensive then. Um, but it was really hard going at first, you know, given that I had I'd been reading travel brochures up until that point. But once I got into the swing of it, I really loved it. And I think on reflection, you know, sort of 30 years hence, I can see it did give a really good grounding on sort of key educational theorists, um, important aspects of child development, psychology. Uh, that was where I first learned about Pavlov's dogs and Freud's eat uh, and ego and superego. Um, and I, I know it was updated later with a third author, but I remember it as having lots of light bulb moments um, for me. And also, you know, being a very practical girl, it was a really thick book. So perfect for a desert island because it would take me ages to get through. And also lots of pages if I needed to have it for um, starting a fire. Oh, I was thinking more sanitary purposes, but then <laughs> I wouldn't like to suggest we might use any um, academic text for such things. But there was a study skills book that went with it as well. Do you remember that? There was. That's right. There was. There was a, um, a kind of Q&A type thing. That's right. They used to sort of take you through chapter by chapter by chapter. It was interesting because I think it was... At that point in my career, I hadn't yet learned that um, you didn't need to open a book and start at page one, <laughs> just work your way through it like a novel. Um, and I remember thinking, oh, if I've got to read every single page, this is going to take me forever. So. I think I still struggle with that. I think I still have a tendency to, to start at page one. In fact, not even page one. Page I, uh -huh. <laughs> I start at the at the introduction and the preface, and I've kind of learned that sometimes that gives the game away. So I probably don't 
but I don't read them in novels now until I get to the end of the novel. But yeah, academic books, I, I read the acknowledgements and everything. <laughs> so did you use it, do you think, when you ended up going out to to work? Or do you think at the end of those four years, you'd had enough of it? Well, I think like most people when, you know, it, certainly in those times when I went out to work, I packed everything away into storage boxes in my loft and thought, well, I won't need any of that again. Um, but in actual fact, as time went on, I did need things, you know, and, and I did go back to them. Um, and I think what was really helpful as a as a new classroom teacher, um, and I always remember my, my first class was in a really challenging area in Glasgow and I had 19 boys and three girls <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know and life had not been kind to these kids um, and I remember going back to sort of call and call you know flicking through <laughs> what did they say about that behaviour stuff <laughs> and of course it was just all about behaviourism and such like it wasn't terribly helpful but um, but yeah, and I, I was I was actually disappointed to realise that I hadn't kept it because um, I thought I might have kept it, but I, I clearly have thrown it out in one of the house moves over the years. I think I've got a copy on my shelf. Should you so need it? I, I I might have to come down just for nostalgic reasons and have a flick through. I have to say, I'm I'm, I'm smirking to myself about uh, you looking for looking at the behaviour stuff. I, I got into bother with my niece a few years ago when she was at primary school when I pointed out to her that her teacher was treating her like one of Pavlov's dogs. And she was quite outraged at the suggestion that they were dogs until <laughs> we started talking about rewards. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> if I'd known then what I know now, but there you go. So that book took you through your initial teacher education and then obviously into the early days of your teaching career. And you've been asked for a book that was perhaps useful to you as a teacher that would be the one that you would take, or it doesn't have to be a book, I suppose it could be a, some other kind of text that you would take with you to this desert island disc to remember fondly yeah. your time as a class teacher or as a head teacher. So what what what's that text? So that one, I think, um, I was probably about seven years into my career when I came across Outside the Black Box by Black and William. Um, I worked in Glasgow City Council at the time. There was a big push on formative assessment, although I think we called it assessment as for learning then. Um, and it sounds ridiculous to say it now, but actually at the time it was quite revolutionary. That notion of that we might tell children what they were learning and why they were learning it and, you know, and how they, what they might need to do, the steps they might need to take to be successful. Um, <clears throat> And I loved the ideas, I loved things like common holy marking. Um, I had great fun experimenting with some of the ideas in the book as a class teacher. I was also at that time a very new and very um, newly appointed and probably appointed far too early senior teacher, as it was in, in those days. Um, and I was tasked with taking the formative assessment forward in the school. And I remember doing a presentation to staff um, and some of my more experienced colleagues, shall we say, um, were absolutely horrified at the notion of success criteria. And I remember one in particular saying, oh, we might as well just give them the answers if we're going to tell them how they need to do it. Um, which, of course, now feels ludicrous. Like, you know, why would you not explain to children what they're learning? Why would you not 
help them to you know to, to get to where they want to go um this was probably also a teacher that had the coal and coal study guide book that had all the answers in it probably probably so, yes do as um, i say not as i do absolutely um so that was a bit of a, a classic for me and i think the interesting thing is it's as thin as coal and coal is thick yes. <laughs> so, um, but worth rereading I think to remind us maybe of how far we've come in terms of understanding how children learn and and what good pedagogy is and and why is this going to sustain you on I mean you're on this desert island who, who on earth are you formatively assessing or is it something that you're going to use with yourself <laughs> That's right. Well, I might, you know, I might formatively assess my own, uh, my own skills at perhaps raft building or food foraging or whatever I need to do. No, it was really more of a sort of nostalgic um, pick, you know, for for sort of looking back, and also because I have to say, Dylan William was my absolute first educational crush. <laughs> <laughs> in fact when I left that job many years later um, one of the gifts I was given was a mouse mat with Dylan Williams picture on it now we are taking it to extremes but I hope I hope somewhere he's listening and, and you know maybe like Glenn Michael he's got a stack of photographs that he can send that's autographed signed copy indeed that would be lovely. And I like that. I like the idea of you picking a nostalgic a book that's Ooh. just for nostalgia's purposes, because nostalgic purposes, because I suppose when we think about Desert Island Discs, the program on the radio, people pick things for nostalgic yeah. reasons. It doesn't necessarily have to have been overly meaningful. It just reminds you of a particular time or, right. or mood. Yeah. So when did you come to work in the university? Uh, twenty nineteen, just a few months before the pandemic hit. Yeah, because time has truncated somewhat in light of the pandemic, mm. and I, I find it hard to remember <laughs> when I did things. <laughs> so one thing that was for sure during the pandemic and being at home, um, and I know that you're studying for your D, you had plenty of time to study since there was nowhere else to go nothing else to do hostage to your desk so what's your what's your text that you've picked for your now that you're working in the university well I suppose yeah the, when I moved into the university I also was by that point a part-time doctor student as you say um and because I you know somewhere in my head I thought that that would be a good idea um and two of my colleagues and friends, um, Doctors Hunter and Beck, um, introduced me to a podcast uh, by Jason Downs, Dr. Jason Downs of La Trope University and Professor Inger Newburn of ANU University, both Australia, um, a podcast called On the Reg, which gives insights into the wonderful world of the academy, as it were, which is quite interesting for someone who was new to academia, mm. um, as well as kind of productivity hacks, you know, for smarter working and um, getting things done more quickly, some of which are I have used and used quite well and others have been a bit kind of beyond me. Um, it's a really good listen. It's, it's often irreverent. It's very sweary. Um, but it's funny and it's also useful. 
But Inga Mewburn is also known as a thesis whisperer on social media. Um, she writes blogs and, and such like. Um, and she writes a brilliant blog aimed at doctoral students. Now, I'm not very good with blogs. Um, I like to read things on paper, being the dinosaur that I am. Um, so I was delighted to discover that she'd taken the blog and she had turned it into a book, um, which is called How to Tame Your PhD. Um, and it's full of really practical, sensible advice. Um, and the chapters, you know, you're saying, you know, the chapters kind of give it away and they do, a wee, the chapter titles give it away, they do a wee bit. Um, but they're, they're, they're quite amusing, you know, written in, in that kind of style. The chapters are called things like Four Types of Dissertation Writers Explained, How to Become a Literature-Searching uh, literature Ninja, how to write a thousand words a day and not go bat crazy. <laughs> um, and the zombie thesis, which is where, you know, you just keep talking about your thesis but not actually writing anything down, which I, I kind of connected quite well with. And it's a great book. And because I've listened to the podcast, I can hear Inger's voice as I, as I read it. Um, and it's really readable. Um, and I know that there are some who would argue that academic books shouldn't be striving for being easily readable. But for me, you know, a woman who is doing a doctorate in her 50s, academics who can take difficult concepts and make them into readable texts should be sainted as far as I'm concerned. Those are my people. Um, so I'm going to take that to my desert island and I'm going to finish the thesis. Oh no! See, that's what I was. Islands. I was going to say, can we let you take that book? You know, you you might be you might be struggling if you finished your your thesis before then. Yeah, well, it's unlikely. <laughs> what? So, what has the thesis whisperer whispered to you that's been particularly useful that you would share with other people? Well, you know, there's been lots of different sort of tips along the way. Um, and it's, you know, I suppose individually they're not really earth shattering, but it's just that notion about the confidence that it gives you, you know, when, you know, so she'll say things like, there will never be a day where you have read enough. At some point you actually have to start writing. You know, you can't just do a thesis on reading. Um, you've, you've got to write things down and, you know, and she's she's got other, like the, the blog itself, um, has different topics so she's got a topic on um writing a literature review a topic on putting together good research questions so whatever stage of your process that you're at you can mm -hmm. find something um that that gives just kind of one or two gems and just it's like all things you know sometimes you get more out of it than others but um i really like this the very easily readable sort of conversational style that it's written in and it, it it's not uh it's not I mean sometimes books about academic writing and such like are quite scary you know you must do this you must do that you must get up and you know you must have written 3,000 words before you have your Weetabix in the morning um and, and if you don't you'll, you'll absolutely fail and this is not like that this is you know well, here's one way to do it or here's a different way to do it or if that doesn't work for you try this which which I really like. Now you like reading it. Are you actually doing what she tells you? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's a whole different question. But no, it's, it's interesting because when I was, when I, I got the book back off the shelf um, to 
to make some notes for this today and and I thought, oh, actually, you know, I'm going to go back and reread it. It's been a week, it's been, a, I don't know, maybe a year or so since I bought it. And I read it cover to cover at the time. But actually, I'm now thinking I will go back now and mm. go into it, you know, the bits about the literature review, what, which is the bit that I'm doing at the moment. Um, and it will be really useful, I think. But there are certainly, there are lots of her tips that I have used along the journey. So she's a good one. She's a good egg. And she's getting to go to the desert island with you. She's coming to the desert island with me. And I think it's quite nice that you say that our, our work can be quite funny. I mean, oh. you wouldn't want to be on that desert island with a dearth of humour. No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know, and Colin Cole's quite heavy. There's not, you know, there's not, not many jokes in there. So. Yeah, literally and metaphorically. Yes, exactly. exactly. Yeah, and I feel we should give poor Lightfoot a, a shout out since... The third name was Lightfoot that came along a wee while after you, I think. Yeah, definitely. Even when we were teaching the students with Cole, Cole and Lightfoot, it's they still truncated it to Cole and Cole. <laughs> I feel so. I'm sure maybe if, if Lightfoot gets the royalties, they won't mind quite so much. No, perhaps, perhaps. <laughs> so, of these books, what are the what are the key ideas really that have lived with you through your? education career do you think and I know that um the one that you've just spoken about the thesis whisperer I, I know that that's not obviously been with you through your whole career but you know do you think when you get to the setting sun when you're on that desert island disc you're either about to be rescued or you've run out of coconuts and fish to eat games of bogey end of the day what are the ideas that will be going through your head from these three books? I think from Cole and Cole, the thing that still stands really are the, the key theories and theorists of child development and child psychology. Um, you know, and, and I think it's it, at the time when I read it or you know, when I was a, a student teacher way back in the day, I probably didn't realise why those were important you know just understanding how children learn how children develop um you know the fact that they develop at very different times and at very different paces and you know that that one stage will come before another stage <clears throat> and I think it wasn't probably till much later in my career that I realized how important that was you know when I was dealing with children with additional support needs and sitting in meetings difficult meetings multi-professional meetings um with with children being labeled and and discussed i think it was really helpful at, at that point um <clears throat> i think the the dylan the black and william book was about i suppose for me it was that, that kind of light bulb moment of oh actually now that i finished initial teacher education it turns out that's not me finished <laughs> no <laughs> <laughs> and again you know I think there was a lot of and, and and maybe that there probably still is but you know a lot of oh you know you don't learn to teach till you're in the classroom and you don't mm. learn anything useful at university and it's not till you're in the classroom um and I don't think that's true I don't think it's true but I might have done at that point um but I think what the Black and William book did for me was was make me realize actually it's really important to be open to new and different ideas um and and the notions of 
the principles, I suppose, of assessment, formative assessment and setting children up for learning and helping them to understand the context and making it a relevant context and, you know, making assessment about these are the really good bits and here are, the, here are some bits that you could improve rather than this is an 8 out of 10, which of course tells them nothing. Um, that absolutely has stayed with me and that notion of just keeping your mind open to, to mm. new and different ways of learning. Um, and then, you know, the, 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 I suppose the message from the team, your PhD is, for me anyway, is it turns out actually starting to do a doctorate in your 50s is all right. <laughs> You know, <laughs> it's okay. Some days I think it's an absolute, you know, crazy idea. But actually, it's okay. And uh, finishing it in your fifties is even better. Yeah, aha, uh -huh. and I'm absolutely determined to do that. Clear. <laughs> I mean, I am very early fifties, so I'm, I'm determined to do that. Um, but I think it's for me, it's quite. I suppose what is sort of symbolic about it, if you like, is that. Coming into university, coming to work in the university has been has been lovely for me. You know, at this stage in my career to come and do a new, very new chapter in my career, which is is really exciting and work that I really, really enjoy, completely different from what I did before, but I love it. And the fact that at 52, I still love going to my work every day and I still love learning, I think is quite I think I think that's a pretty good thing, you know. I think that's a good thing. So maybe that's what what the final one is symbolic of. I think that's a really nice thing to um, to almost finish on, because um, well, the way the the program works on the radio is you're only allowed to choose one ultimately. So if you're only allowed to choose one of those three books, which would it be and why? Well, if I go on to the desert island before I finish my thesis, I'm definitely taking Tame Your Thesis with me. <laughs> um, yeah, if I'm if I'm if I'm only taking one, I'm I'm definitely taking that one, and I'm not coming off that desert island until I finished the thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm obviously I'm assuming that somehow I've got access to internet and a computer. And... Well, usually you don't have access to that no. kind of thing. It's a pose on the on the radio program no. but maybe we can make a maybe we can make a restricted exception maybe. if you're doing your thesis that you know you're going to carry on with your academic work and we'll allow you to access journal articles or online books but we won't allow you to access I don't know your Facebook page or Nation Street yeah. or an iPlayer or something <laughs> fair enough <laughs> And the other thing they do on the radio program is they allow you a luxury item. So you have an academic luxury item and we won't count your computer. Ah, OK. So okay, can I choose another book for my academic luxury item? Oh, you can, yeah. Right. OK, so I'm going to choose another book then. Because I'm not entirely sure what an academic luxury item would look like. I thought for you it might be post-its or highlighters or something. I have seen your tweets. Ah, uh, yes, stationery, queen of stationery, that's true. It, it, it potentially could be, but no, I'm going to choose another book because this was a book that I suppose saved me from a period in my career where I was at the risk of beginning to feel a bit jaded, um, where you just sort of start to think, oh, is this it? 
you know, mm. am I ever going to make a difference? You know, because you come out of initial teacher education to determine you're going to change the world. And of course, we're not really changing the world, but sometimes you don't feel like you're, cha you're changing anything. And this is a book called The Magic Weaving Business by an author called Sir John Jones. So he's an educator from north of England, somewhere in Lancashire, I want to say. Um, and again, he's up there with the kind of educational, um, the sort of inspiring educational speakers that I've heard over my career. Um, and the, the title of the book comes from a story he tells where he talks about teachers as weavers of magic. Um, and it's about that notion of teachers creating, you know, not just teaching about history, for example, but teaching about a love of history. Um, he's thoroughly entertaining and a really inspirational speaker but he's also a bit of a rarity in education in that he talks a lot of sense um as well and and he really talks about teaching as a as a sort of endeavor of the heart um which I really like um he introduced me to the concept of single loop learning where we fail in a particular endeavor because when something doesn't work we just go back and we try the same thing, but just a wee bit harder or very slightly different. Mm -hmm. And what he says is actually what we need to do is we need to do double loop learning and we have to go back to the actual problem and think about it in a different way. And, and I, I, I kind of think, you know, how often have we tried to solve educational issues using single loop learning? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we're trying to solve problems using the same thinking that caused them, it's no wonder we don't succeed. The book also has a really strong theme of social justice running through it, um, which appeals to me. And, and Sir John Jones talks about righteous indignation, about teachers should have righteous indignation, that whole feeling of horror, despair, but also determination that you're going to do something to help someone else's circumstances namely the children that are that are in your care um and and he he in one of the the bits he talks about the differences in the number of words children have addressed to them in the first four years of their life which you know we've probably all heard in in lectures according to their sort of socioeconomic status and and it's quite staggering to see that the difference in in print but he also breaks that down further to talk about not just the number of words but the type of words um, so he talks about a child from a professional family will typically experience, I think it's 166,000 words of encouragement to every 26,000 words of discouragement. Whereas at the other end of the socioeconomic spectrum, a child will hear 26,000 words of encouragement against a backdrop of 57,000 words of discouragement. Um, and and the way he explains that, you know, the way he explains why that's important is because he said, obviously, you know, teachers can make a difference. And I really like the way he describes it when he says, the good news is teachers make the difference. The bad news is teachers make the difference. Mm -hmm. And I think it's about remembering that you need to be the teacher that makes the positive difference. Um, so that's going to be my luxury item because it's a book that makes me both laugh out loud and sort of you know snivel <laughs> dab the corners of my eye um, and again because I've, I've seen him speak a couple of times he came um, to speak in the local authority that I worked in as a head teacher um, again I can hear his voice when I'm reading it which I really like.
yes, exactly. I've sneaked in a fourth book. You haven't half. <laughs> and what I'm thinking by the time you go off that desert island is, and maybe I'll come and rescue you, but not until you've written the fifth book, which is your thesis, I suppose. Yes, that would be fine. I'll let you know when it's done. <laughs> you send me smoke signals. Yes. And, you know, I'll try and make it a, a, a tropical desert island and not something off the west coast of Scotland where it's liable to be a wee bit miserable. Yeah, I don't stick me on Barra or something. <laughs> no offence to people who... No offence to Barra. I'm sure it's lovely. I've never been, but I'm sure it's absolutely lovely. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's not likely to be sunny and tropical. Not all the time. Well, thank you very much. And I know that at the end of um, Desert Island Discs, they've got that sailing on by music or what I can't remember what they call it and I feel uh-huh. like we should probably have a rendition of the big ship sails on the Alio or something as <laughs> our kind of Glasgow version but we don't want to put people off listening to the podcast Claire by us well, certainly, certainly not with me singing so I will for now thank you very much Nova you're um, welcome thank you for having I really me. enjoyed hearing about your books I'm a way to think about my own good thanks Claire thank you Thank you for listening in to our Strathclyde Education podcast series. We'll be back soon with another episode.